<clears throat> it's good to be sitting here with everybody today. Robert Aiken Roshi once said that we should sit on the forward edge of our physical endurance in Zen practice. And there's a truth in what he's saying that we can challenge ourselves uh, when it comes to what we think we can handle in practice. Certainly physical pain can be an important tool to teach us tolerance and how the mind escapes, how when we involve ourselves deeply in practice, we suddenly don't hurt quite as much. But in addition, I think he would agree that it's not simply about physical endurance, that's the point, but rather it's important to sit on the forward edge of what I would call empathic endurance, building our empathic capacity, another way to put it. In Zen, we don't explicitly talk much about empathy, but in the Vipassana tradition, which is another major form of Buddhism, empathy or metta, often translated as loving-kindness, is a central practice. Uh, a general metta meditation begins by attempting, attempting to generate goodwill or kindness towards oneself, uh, towards someone who is close to us, to strangers, and then out to people that we have particular difficulties with. And the goal is to generate that empathy or compassion to all beings. Uh, Kind of think of concentric circles, uh, beginning with oneself and radiating outwards. I found it interesting recently when looking into this word metta, which is a Pali word, that another uh, translation is to take an active interest in. And I thought to myself, this sounds more like Zen. I'll get into that in a few minutes. In the wake of the mass shooting last week in Las Vegas, my mind began to turn towards to generate an active interest in the why and the how. Why did this happen? How could this happen again? Not necessarily in terms of uh, looking at it from a legislative point of view or from a political point of view, but wrestling with the root of what compels somebody to commit such unspeakable acts of violence. 
The other day I read an article in the Washington Post about um, this man, Stephen Paddock. It was just two days after the shooting that the article came out. Um, It outlined his background with interviews. Uh, Must have been quickly put together. Interviews with family and acquaintances. And the article had very hurried quality to it. For some reason, I had the image of a reporter scrambling to put together as many sources as they could to get this information out to the public. When something like this happens, we all want to know why. And to get some clear picture we tend to rely on articles like this to understand. You could say that we all seek understanding, but having worked with Buddhist practitioners for a while now, it seems that there's a tension that we as practitioners have and feel when it comes to seeking and questioning, wanting to understand. On the one hand, we come to practice seeking freedom of one kind or another. Uh, But on the other hand, we hear and internalize a message that we should stop our seeking to be okay with what's in front of us. And so these two forces can be hard to reconcile. And so I've noticed that in Buddhist practitioners, um, oftentimes there's a force of trying to stop this seeking, this questioning, looking. And it often can come across where people believe that their seeking is somehow an ugly thing, something unspiritual. And then a tension begins, an internal battle between these two seeming opposing forces. And what follows seems to be sometimes where people begin to beat themselves up for wanting for craving something when it comes to practice. I should be okay with things the way they are. I should forget awakening. One uh, famous psychologist said that we should all over ourselves. The shoulding, you could say, is a kind of violence and it's definitely an intolerance. It's definitely a um, intolerance of ourselves. Another way that we um, turn our craving into... Another way to put it is that we hate the fact that we're craving and we refuse to accept it. 
And in the process of turning from this craving, from this seeking, we create the very thing that we're trying to work against, which is intolerance or non-acceptance. The Buddha taught that all suffering comes from seeking. We seek because we want things to be different on some level. Seeking, of course, might be another word for craving. But I wonder if we could begin to differentiate between two kinds of seeking. There's the kind of seeking that comes from our mind and a kind of seeking that comes from our heart. In Buddhism, there is the concept of bodhicitta, which is the sudden, spontaneous wish for awakening. It's the desire to end desire. When someone is so determined to understand and motivated out of their own heart's unsettledness, that they seek understanding. I would argue that this heart's desire to know itself is at the very core of human inquiry. Human beings are explorers. We are wired to seek and scanning the horizon, looking for patterns, looking for answers. Not just in the realms of space or science or religion or self-improvement. I believe that at the core of all of our craving, our wondering, our wandering, looking is a wish for connection. And that's why when some of us look up at the stars <clears throat> and there's a wish, a longing to explore them because we long for intimacy, to experience what's outside of us so far away, uh, a wish to have that close to us. And when I think about Stephen Paddock, the shooter, I wonder what he was seeking. When a tragedy like this happens, some people complain that the media focus too much on the perpetrator, not enough on the victims, which I get, I understand that. We should focus on the victims. And yet, there could be a longing to understand how something like this could happen, to understand this person. But some want to shut that wish for understanding down. They might say things something like, well, he was just plain crazy, period. End of story. As Buddhists, and especially Zen Buddhists, we have to remember that the core practice 
of our tradition is inquiry, not an intellectual curiosity, but a deep inquiry. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to do this kind of inquiry. Inquiry, you could say, is another word for metta. Remember that other translation of active, inactive um, interest. So not only just loving kindness, but taking an active interest. In Zen, we're not trying to understand things merely with the intellect. We're trying to understand things with our hearts. The Buddha said that I, he teaches, he said that he taught one thing, the sure hearts release. We often hear the word shin, the Japanese word in Zen, which is translated as mind. For example, the word session means to touch the mind. But a better translation for shin would be heart-mind. And perhaps even a better would be the core, the heart, the core. So when we look at the nature of inquiry in Zen, we see that it's about questioning the heart, questioning the core of something, to dive below the surface of things. This is Zen metta, inquiry, inquiring to seek understanding. When we inquire, we keep the door open. We don't settle for simple understandings. When we do this with situations like the one in Las Vegas, it helps us to turn away from this tendency of the mind to go towards black and white thinking and our desire to oversimplify things. But I wonder if there's another reason that people hesitate to practice Zen metta or inquiry. I wonder if we question things too deeply, if it might disrupt our fixed notions, not only of the world, but of ourselves. And in some sense, we'd rather keep the lid on Pandora's box. A part of us wants to reify, to make solid our understanding of others and of ourselves. And so when we look for answers, we tend to look outside of ourselves. I don't know how many people here are familiar with a book called The True Believer. Yeah, it was written after World War II by a man named Eric Hoffer. Um, and I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but he's an interesting guy. He, when he was five, his mother was carrying him, and he, they fell down the steps together, and she was injured, uh, dying two years later due to complications. And when he was seven, when she died, 
he lost his eyesight temporarily and his memory. Um, but when he was 15, his eyesight returned, sort of out of the blue. And when it came back, he was actually um, motivated to read as much as he could before possibly losing his eyesight again. Um, his dad also died when he was quite young. He struggled with depression. Um, and he lived a very kind of down-and-out life, uh, working as a longshoreman during World War II because he didn't qualify because of a hernia to serve. Um, he always denied being an intellectual. But his writing is quite good. And this book outlines the psychology behind why people join mass movements, essentially how and why people come when people believe that their lives are becoming or have already become meaningless, that they look to large groups that demand radical change, this tendency to look outside of ourselves. He says in that book, that there's a tendency to locate the shaping forces of our existence outside of ourselves. Success and failure, he goes on, are unavoidably related to our minds with a state of things around us. Hence, many people with a state of fulfillment think that it's a good world and would like to conserve it approximately as it is, while the frustrated ones seek radical change. And we tend to look for the causes outside of ourselves, even when the problem lies within us. This is so true. I run into this when I work with people, asking how I could best help them. Sometimes people say, can you change my wife? Or can you change my boss? There are the problem. Of course, this is what's happening in our country now with this white nationalist movement, a group of what you would what Eric Hoffer might call the newly poor. And by poor, what I mean is not necessarily um, financially poor, but poor in a sense of diminishing sense of entitlement and power. He um, says around this new poor, he said, it's usually those whose poverty is relatively recent, the new poor who throb with the ferment of frustration. The memory of better things is often is as fire in their veins. They are the disinherited and disposed who respond to every rising mass movement. <clears throat> Looking outside of ourselves, this tendency to look outside of ourselves is not what Zen practice is about. Perhaps we'll never know what the shooter in Las Vegas was about, what and why 
why he did what he did. Earlier, I but I wonder if we might consider one possibility. Earlier, I reminded us that the, what the Buddha taught, that all suffering arises from craving. When the Buddha had his great awakening, he exclaimed, supposedly, wonder of wonders, all beings are inherently pure, whole, but because their minds are up over, uh, turned upside down with delusive thinking, they fail to perceive it. We all crave this kind of wholeness, I believe, and yet we go around looking for this wholeness in wholly delusive ways. We look outside of ourselves, we grasp at ideologies, we latch on to people, we push people away, perhaps we even kill people. Our methods, the ways we go after this wholeness is turned upside down with delusive thinking and action. We want to be made whole. And when our attempts are thwarted, we lash out, or we lash in. We inflict the hurt that we feel on others, or say to ourselves, I want you to feel what I feel, a perverted attempt at gaining understanding. This type of upside-down thinking when the atomic bomb was dropped for the first time and Einstein, who of course was central in this work, saw it, he said, everything has changed now except for the way we think. Einstein points to our own thinking just as the Buddha did. While killing is an extreme form of delusive thinking, we do hurt ourselves and others, perhaps in smaller ways, over and over again, out of our delusive thinking. So Zen practice asks us to look at the way we commit violence, how we act unskillfully, and to understand the roots of that, to seek understanding. But it posits also that there is a solution that we don't simply stop at understanding the causes and conditions, but we practice in order to find a way out of this delusive thinking. The third noble truth, remember, is that there is a way out. Coming back to what the Buddha said, the reason for my teaching is not for merit or good deeds or good karma or concentration or rapture or even insight. None of these is the reason that I teach, but the heart's sure release. I believe that when we feel our hearts closing, our minds shutting down, part of the solution might be practice Zen Metta, this practice of deep inquiry.